Good morning, church. It's uh, absolutely wonderful to, uh, to see you all this morning. Uh, for some of you, it's the first time that I'm seeing you here. For, for many of you, it's a wonderful time to be together again. So it is exciting to be here this morning. Uh, before I go any further, let me read this morning's scripture, which is 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's time that we can come together to sit in adoration of you, to to sing of your praises, to sit under the power of your word. And and Lord, I pray that in this time that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would speak to us by the power of your word, that you would use a broken vessel like myself to communicate your truth, that this would not be my plan or my agenda, but God, that the, the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified and advanced. Be with us in this time now. We pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Now, I was going to say a few years ago, but I guess it's been several years ago now. When I first became a dad, uh, I didn't grow up with uh, a consistent dad in, in my life. Uh, and so I did what most people my age do. I turned to the internet. Uh, and I, uh, I, I, I say that jokingly, but I, I became part of this group on Facebook called The Dad. And a lot of it was uh, mostly fathers like myself uh, that were new at this whole fatherhood thing and, and sharing stories and, and asking for support and things like that. But every now and then they'll, they'll share humorous things as well. And one of the recent things that they did, they conducted a poll of fathers and mothers on uh, what are called dadisms, the, the things that fathers say that most human men would not say, but for some reason, once you become a dad, it just instinctively comes out of your mouth. And so when they, when they asked the mothers, the, the, out of the top three, the, the third one was, 
No, your other right. So when someone's looking for something and they say to the right, but they go left, you say, no, your other right. The second one is that when you're driving down the road and you pass by a group of horses and say, look, horses. <laughs> and the number one thing that mothers are convinced that dads say is when you're driving down the road and the traffic is backed up the going the other direction to say, glad we're not going that way. I, I do that myself. But when they asked the dads, the number three response was, that's not going anywhere after you tie something down to the top of the car. The number two response was, no, you're rather right. So the moms had that one, but they had it as number three and not number two. But the, the moms and dads agreed that the number one dadism is glad we're not going that way. But there are some other interesting ones on here that I, I really found surprising that more dads didn't say, like when you're using a, a stud finder to hold it up to yourself and say, I found it. <laughs> or when, uh, when you go out to, to eat somewhere or go anywhere in public and you see a friend of yours say, well, I guess they'll let anyone in here, huh? And uh, uh, for some reason, I don't know why this is a dad thing, but it's so true. Anytime we go out to eat, I find myself, as I grab the bill and get ready to leave, the dad in me has to say, time to rock and roll. And it's a dad thing. And, and I don't know why, but somehow becoming a father causes men to become dads, to say these dadism things. And one of the other things that I've noticed in my life that as I have become a father, and especially now that we actually have our own home, is I have become that dad that constantly just walks through the house, turning off every light in the house that either the wife or kids have left on. I'm that dad. There's something about being a father that literally changes a man. And on a much grander scale, as, as humorous as that was, on a much grander scale, that is how the gospel should impact a believer. In fact, I would say that Scripture shows us that the power of the gospel should create a noticeable change in a believer's life. Not just a, a change of, of thought process or, or a different philosophy, but that there should be a noticeable change, a noticeable difference in a believer's life because of the gospel. And this passage that we're looking at this morning shows three areas where this change can be seen. First, in, in verses 2 through 5, and the way that you view hope. So there's a noticeable change first in the way that you view hope in verses two through five. In verses six through seven, the way that you view others, the people around you. So first, the way you view hope. Second, the way you view others. And third, the way you view today and tomorrow. And that's in verses eight through 10. So first, the way you view hope Second, the way you view others. And third, the way you view today and tomorrow. And again, the first area where you see this change is the way that you view hope. Because the natural human condition, the normal inclination of the human heart is entirely focused on the self. You are your own hope. And I know we can look around the world and, and see other things that people look to 
but it boils down to how you interact with those things to where your hope comes from. It could be your politics, if you're aligned with the, the right party, or if you're voting for the correct person or not. And so your hope really boils down to, are you making the right decision? Are you aligning yourself with the right political power to bring about hope? It could be your work. Are you working hard enough? Are you doing enough in your job to be noticed, to hopefully get that career advancement or that raise, or whatever it is? Are you working hard enough to bring hope? It could even be in school. I know it's summer. You don't want to think about school right now. But it could be, are you, are you working hard enough in school? For those of you that are getting old enough to, to start thinking about college, is your GPA high enough that you're going to be able to get into that college that's going to change your life? Or to get into that college so you can escape from your parents? Are you doing the right extracurriculars so that way uh, others will look upon you favorably? Are you expected to participate in certain extracurriculars because that's what your family has always done? We look to these outside things in our life, but it's the way that we react to them that we're disguising the fact that we are trying to be our own hope. You have to make the right decision. You have to do the work. In fact, over the past year, we've seen uh, hope in, in crazy different places, but even over social distancing protocols, which are good and helpful, but uh, there's the whole uh, insane debate over wearing masks and, you know, are, are you doing enough or are you, should you wear one mask or two masks? Are you doing enough to stay safe or with the, the vaccine that you have to get this vaccine? You have to do the work. You have to make the effort to bring hope into a dire situation. Wherever you look for hope in this world, it boils down to your interaction to find hope. But look at what Paul says about the Thessalonians, going back to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now again, this is Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy coming to, to minister to the church in Thessalonica. And at first, it, it, it sounds like he's going back to this, this concept of the work that they're having to do. He says that we uh, remember before our God and Father your work of faith. And, and it, it would be easy to say, well, he's talking about the work that they had to do. But the work that they did was not to earn hope the work of faith that they were doing was because they already had hope. Their work was not trying to earn God's favor. Their work was because they had already been given favor. He says that their hope was in Jesus Christ. 
He says, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That this ministry was received in power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. All of those things, their, their hope is coming from things outside of themselves. Their hope is in Jesus Christ who did their, that work on their behalf. Their hope is in the God who has chosen them. That they didn't have to earn his affection, but he chose them first. That this power was exhibited in the Holy Spirit the, the, the ministry and the miracles that came along with the gifts and fruit of the Spirit and the conviction that they displayed, the repentance that these Thessalonians displayed. The hope came from outside of themselves. They didn't contribute anything to it. It wasn't about how much they had to do to find hope. They were just recipients of that hope and that that hope urged them, caused them to go out and do these works of love and faithfulness. It reminds me of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter two, where he says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Your hope is a part of the grace of God. It's God's work in you. It's not your own effort. It's not your own will. It's not how many good things you can do. But it's purely the gift of grace through God so that you cannot boast. So that you cannot say, I did enough things to make God love me. Your hope does not derive from who you vote for. Your hope does not come from where you stand on divisive cultural issues. Your hope doesn't come from how many good things you do. Your hope doesn't come from how many bad things you have done in the past. It's not about how hard you work, and it's not even about how good of a Christian you can be, how many scriptures you can memorize, how many times you go to Bible studies. Your hope does not come from these things. For the believer... Hope comes from what was done on your behalf from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The hope isn't from you, but from God. Because it has nothing to do with the work that you can accomplish. There should also be a noticeable change in the second point, the way that you view others. Just as the natural condition of the human heart is to view hope through the lens of work and self, it's the same with those around you, the people in your life. Without, if you realize it or not, you view others, or you tend to view others according to work and how it relates to you. That, at least that's the natural inclination. Think about it. Many times, whenever you meet a person for the first time, if it's not the first question that you ask, it's one of the first, but the question is, so what do you do? That one question gives you, 
in your mind a summary of, of who this person is and how they relate to you. When you ask, what do you do? It gives you uh, at least an how hard they work, how much money they may make, what kind of education they probably have. Is this person a threat to me in my work or are they can, someone that I can consider an ally? Are they a connection that can be made? The natural tendency of the human heart is to view others through a lens of work and how it impacts you. But the gospel flips that on its head. Look at what Paul wrote picking up in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word and much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This group of believers, this church in Thessalonica became imitators of of Paul and, and his, his mission organization as they were going around the known world advancing the gospel, this church imitated Paul and Silvanus and T- Timothy. But not just them, but he says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. He doesn't give specific details. He doesn't say you did this, this, and this, X, Y, and Z. But he says that from the way he describes it, it was noticeable Others could look at them and see the change that has taken place. And I would imagine that they were finding practical ways to live out Jesus' reply to the Pharisees. That when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly say that, but the the change in their lives was so noticeable that their very behavior, their very way of life was noticed by by believers and non-believers alike. And when you follow what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, you're going to be different from the world around you. You're set apart. And the, what Jesus says, loving the Lord with everything that you've got, with all, your, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, that, that's an open-ended definition. It's, it's not concrete. There's not, well, you need, to do, uh, you need to do this on Mondays and this on Tuesdays. It, it's... It's vague. But the Thessalonians' believers' lives were were so different that it caused Paul to say, you're not only imitating us, you're imitating the Lord. So much so that they became an example to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not not a a shaming sort of example. You know, not that that kind of example where, where someone says, well, why can't you be more like your brother? Because we've all heard that kind of example. Why can't you be more like that person over there? But that, that kind of example doesn't lead to hope. But they're the kind of example 
of someone who's starting a new job and at a new hire, they're partnered with someone who is a seasoned employee learning the, the, the tools of the trade or like an apprentice, a apprentice shadowing a mentor. That they're following someone to learn their example. Example of someone saying, this is what I do. These are the things that I've learned along the way. And you're going to find your own rhythm to make this work. That's the kind of example that the church in Thessalonica had become. Because while Scripture gives guidelines for worship, things that you can and cannot do, there's no manner set in stone on how to love your neighbor. For some of you in here, it might just literally be getting to know your neighbor, spending time with them, learning who they are as people, and building that relationship. For some of you in here, loving your neighbor might actually look more like extending mercy and forgiveness for something that happened in the past. For some of you in here, loving your neighbor might be a, an, an act of service. It might be mowing your neighbor's lawn when, when chaos and strife hits their life. Or it might be, you know that they're struggling, so you know what, uh, we're going to help you buy groceries or, or, or pick up one of your bills this month. For some of you in here, loving your neighbor might literally be sitting down with them and having a gospel conversation. There is no set way, set definition to, to love your neighbor. There's no one way to do it right. But there are plenty of ways to show love. And so I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Has the gospel impacted you so deeply that the people around you would say they're imitating Jesus. Are you finding ways to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor so well that people look at you and say, man, I bet that's what Jesus looked like. Not in a, um, not in a shaming manner, but I, I want you to, to think about that. Has the gospel impacted your life and brought about such a change that you are mirroring the love of Jesus to those around you. Lastly, the gospel should make a noticeable change in the way that you view today and tomorrow. Let's look at how Paul closes his description of the Thessalonian believers. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These Thessalonians were so boldly proclaiming the word and they were so passionately living out their faith in God that even the other Greeks saw it and they said there's something different here these people are different and what did these Greeks see they saw that these Thessalonian believers were turning from pagan idols 
that they were worshiping the one true God and that they were waiting for Christ to return. The gospel had taken root in this Thessalonian church and it changed their way of life so dramatically that they turned from the idols of their day and said, we want nothing to do with these anymore, but we serve God alone. And that he is our hope for the future. Now again, the natural human condition or the, the natural condition for the human heart is to focus on one or the other, either today or tomorrow, the now or the not yet. There are, are many groups who use uh, the, the gospel, they use scripture, they use the Bible solely for impacting the world of today. A lot of times it's to bring about some kind of social reform or social justice, which can be good things, but they want to make these biblical changes now that often tend to be a humanistic view of, of the world around them, and it overlooks or neglects the eternal concept of justice and redemption. But then there are, are, are other groups that are so focused on eternity, they're so focused on, on the future in heaven that they're ignoring the suffering and the pain of people here on earth. And that, that's more of a fatalistic view. One is saying, well, humans can just be better if we just love each other better. And the other view is saying, well, things in, in the future are going to be great, so just, just deal with it and suffer now and, and heaven's going to be glorious. And the problem is that you're focusing on one or the other, but the, the, the gospel so changed the Thessalonian believers that they were living in the tension of holding both of those. And that's the, the tension of the Christian faith is to turn from idols and to daily live faithfully and yet at the same time wait longingly for Christ looking forward to eternity. That's the tension that you are called to live in. Because one day Christ will come again, not as the humble servant that he came as the first time, the, the suffering servant who came and suffered and was beaten and suffered a humiliating death on the cross, a death where he bore your sin and guilt and shame. But when he comes again, he's coming back as a victorious warrior, the victorious Jesus Christ who rose again after three days in victory over sin and death. And he's coming back again to reclaim his people, to bring eternal justice and to destroy the enemies of God and to restore what has been broken. But even though Jesus is coming again one day, that does not negate the need for daily faithfulness. Because your hope, your faith, your salvation, well, your salvation is, but your, your Christian life is not a one-time procedure. Your justification is a one-time procedure, but not your sanctification. Your Christian faith is not because you walked the aisle one time when you were 12. But it's about a daily dying to selfish desires and renewing your mind by the word of Christ. Or as Paul said to the church in Rome, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The power of God brings this process into your life called sanctification. And I know, I know that's a big churchy word. It's not something that you hear every day when you go to work or school or hang out in the summertime. But sanctification is a beautiful word. Or as the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Did you catch that? The process of sanctification is God's gift to you where more and more every day you are made to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That hopefully your more willing to die to sin today than you were last week. And that you desire righteous living more today than you did last week. And maybe, hopefully next week, you want to die unto sin even more. And you want to live unto righteousness even more. That's the process that God has begun in you. But can that be said of you? If you examine your heart, do you find yourself wanting to die to sin? To turn away from the the false idols that are in your heart and in your life? Do you find your heart wanting to live for righteousness? Do you find yourself resting in the glory of God, not just for today, but today and tomorrow? So as we finish this morning... I want you to ask yourself, to really dig deep, to wrestle with the question, has the gospel gripped your life? Is your hope in what you can accomplish, or has your hope shifted to the one who chose you and did the work for you on your behalf? Do you view others and those around you according to how their work affects and impacts you? Are you searching for ways to love your neighbor as you love yourself? And do you find yourself living day to day without a purpose or drive for daily living or hope for the future? Or do you find yourself living in the tension of faithfully following Christ and resting in his work today and tomorrow? How will you choose to live? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done for us on our behalf. Because as we confess, it is far too easy for us to want to focus on ourselves. We want to try to earn our hope. We want to try to earn our redemption. And we can never do enough. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work and the love that you have shown to us first. 
Help us to rest in that love. Help us to rest in that hope that you have given to us. As it changes not just our hope, but as it impacts the way we view the world around us and the way we live our lives today and forevermore. Let us find our hope in you. We pray all of this in the precious name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.